Welcome to the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Join me for conversations about how to advocate for our kids in a one-size-fits-all world. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Hey everyone, so glad you're with us today. We're going to talk to Zach Weinstein. He was diagnosed with focal dystonia at the age of eight. It's a condition that disrupts the communication between his brain and arms. Rather than focusing on his disability, he celebrates his abilities, particularly as an avid tennis player. And another little fun fact about Zach, he is the son of a previous guest, Alyssa DeVere. She came on a few weeks back. She talked about confidence in our kids. And she mentioned Zach a couple times in the episode. I was so impressed at everything she said that I wanted to have him on. And Zach, I am so glad that you took me up on the invitation. Thanks for having me here. I want to talk about dystonia because admittedly, I had never heard of it before. And I'm assuming there are some listening that also have not heard of it before. So can you explain what dystonia is and how it impacts you on a daily basis? Yeah, of course. So dystonia is essentially a miscommunication between the brain and certain body parts. So for me, it affects my arms and my wrists, but for other people, it can affect their back, their neck, their feet, and it can be very severe to very mild. Because I've known people who have had to get surgery because they had it so badly in their back that it would hurt to walk. And I've also known people who just have very minor severity in their neck and they walk around with their neck turned a little bit occasionally. So there's a lot of variables to it, but the essence is that there's that miscommunication between the brain and the body part. And so the body part moves involuntarily. And for me personally, as I said, I have it in my wrists and my arms. And so my daily life, there's a lot of little things that people don't really think about that require a lot of coordination that have been tricky for me. One of the biggest things, especially with me being a student, is that writing has always been a struggle for me. And so even now, I've gotten a lot of control under it, but I still take a longer time to write and I have to get accommodations. And that's been one of the biggest things that my dystonia has changed in my daily life. And other little stuff, just carrying things and cooking and even like very fine motor skills. Like I couldn't shake hands for a long time. So my daily life is just a lot of working on little coordination things that a lot of people take for granted. Yeah. So how common is dystonia? So I don't know the exact numbers. I know it is very uncommon. It's very much related to Parkinson's. So that's kind of where people would initially hear about dystonia, but it's genetic. So it's not super common, but it does pass down throughout families. So it is present and it's getting a lot more attention. But yeah, it's not super common, but it's certainly out there. Yeah, and you're helping to give it more attention by talking about it today. You shared with me that you saw early signs of this at the age of six. Mm -hmm. What were those 
early symptoms? So it was in school, and at that point, it was only in my left arm because I have dystonia in both of my arms. And as a lefty in school, you're doing everything with your dominant arm. So the teacher noticed I was having trouble writing and I couldn't move stuff and that there was just a level of functioning that wasn't comparable to the other kids who weren't having those troubles. And so there was a lot of teacher communication with my parents and it went on for a while because we didn't know what it was. I mean, for a while we thought maybe it's just anxiety because that's what happens when people have anxiety. But when you're a kid, it's hard because you're a kid. And so it wasn't until I was eight that we kind of realized that, all right, so most likely it's dystonia. I checked off all those boxes. And yeah, that's kind of how it happened. Yeah, but it sounds like it took you two years from the initial symptoms to an actual diagnosis. That's, yeah. that's a long time to go without clarity for you and your parents. It was also tricky, too, because it's one of those developmental disabilities that don't hit you in the face. You see a bunch of little things. So for a while, like I said before, you're a kid, like there's a lot of other stuff going on. So you want to kind of blow it off and not jump the gun. So for a while, it was kind of just, all right, like talking with the teachers, trying to figure out stuff to work with. And it wasn't until that it got worse and we realized that there was a lot more shaking and uncontrollable shaking and it was starting to come up in my other arm too that we were like okay this is certainly something a lot more serious than we initially thought we need to do research figure something out and see what this is you've mentioned already how this has moved throughout your body and i know some things have actually improved for you as you've gotten older what's the outlook for you and dystonia in general? Is it something that worsens over time? Is it something that can be cured? As of right now, they don't have a definitive cure. The kind of go-to cures are unfortunately last resort options. So DBS, deep brain stimulation, and pacemakers, those are more considered for severe cases. Mine is not as bad. Like I mentioned earlier, I've met people that have had it really badly in their back to the point where like they can't walk and at that point that's when you have to consider is it important it's tricky and then it also it varies by person they like i said again some people have it a lot worse than others so it's really a judgment based on what seems necessary and how tricky it's making life for the person being affected by it. So speaking of that, how was it to be a kid growing up with a physical disability that was noticeable to others, particularly other kids? I mean, did they treat you harshly? Were you bullied because of this? So I was fortunate enough that I grew up in a area of Massachusetts where it was very inclusive and they had a lot of those services in place to serve kids with disabilities and i consider myself lucky because 
for a long time after I got over that initial hump where I started to realize that I could get control over this. Essentially, nobody at school knew about it besides like my super close friends and my teachers and the guidance counselors, because those are the people that I'm interacting with regularly. And I was I was never bullied about it. Funny enough, for a long time, I always thought it was pretty cool because I was the one kid in class who'd sit in the back and be able to type on the laptop and everyone turns around, looks at me and it's like, I wish I could sit. I mean, it's like a fifth grader sitting on a laptop typing notes where everyone else in class is writing notes and they're like, why are we tired of writing notes? And I'm sitting there, I'm like, I don't know. (laughs) I love that. You have really embraced being a misfit. I just love it. And there were all the, I guess, the perks, right? So let's talk more about that because you obviously had to have those accommodations. And how did you make it work? And how did your teachers and guidance counselors and parents and you all work together to make you as comfortable and as successful as possible through your school journey? It's a good question. So there was obviously a lot of conversations, mom and dad coming into school, talk with guidance counselor and everyone else involved with accommodations. And so just one of the big things was giving me space to figure out what's comfortable. I I remember sixth grade, I was having trouble writing. And at that time, the way that I taught myself to write was literally standing and pressing down on the table. And I mean, when you're a five foot 10 sixth grader, it's tricky because the tables never really meet my height. So like I ended up always having to sit in the very back of the classroom. If I wasn't typing, if I like needed to write something, I was in the back. And so there was a lot of accommodating, but my teachers were amazingly receptive about it. And a lot of them were constantly checking in to make sure that like, hey, were you able to keep up with the notes and stuff? And I remember like there are teachers that would help me. Like I would stay after school to finish tests because I was writing at half the speed as everyone else. And so as that kind of worked, I we realized, all right, these are the systems that need to be in place. And I mean, the same systems that I had when I was in sixth grade, still in place here in college. When I take tests, I still get extra time. I have the option to have someone write for me. So there was a lot, there's a lot of conversations between parents and teachers and everyone else involved. And it's constant. It's not like, check in every year, every semester. It's like checking in every other week. And if with my parents, it's every day. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Especially now that you're a college student, I'm sure your your mom has you on speed dial. (laughs) So uh, I love that tennis is an outlet for you and really this incredible blessing because you don't experience your symptoms of dystonia while playing tennis. So talk more about what tennis does for you. So I honestly would say that tennis in a way kind of saved my life. It's what ke- it what keeps me sane. Mm-hmm. And so for a long time I started playing when I was 6. I you know I played recreationally for a long time once I got to high school I started taking it seriously. And for a while we just were like 
We don't know why, like when I'm playing tennis, it doesn't work. And we kind of just pushed off answering that why, because we're like, you know what? It works. Who cares why? Yeah. Don't mess with a good thing. Exactly. (laughs) I mean, we didn't want to go down that road where we open up that outlook and open that chance to learn something negative. And so we realized as I got older and got more vocal and was able to better understand stuff, we realized that when I'm playing tennis, my brain is just kind of switches into this different mode and it's thinking so fast that it basically doesn't have time. My arms don't have time to be like, hey, we're going to do our own thing. And so it's amazing because every single person that I play tennis with through high school, through college, with the exception of my roommate, doesn't know I have the disability. And I mean, my parents have videos and pictures of me. And so I'm looking at that, you'd be like, yeah, no, he plays tennis, no issues. So through everything, tennis has just been one of those things that made me feel normal. Hmm. And I know we all need to feel that at some times, even though you're really great about embracing every part of you. I know it's nice just to feel comfortable and feel like things happen easily. And it's neat that the tennis court is that place for you. So what advice do you have for parents who are listening that have a child with a physical disability? I'd say a couple of things. I mean, the first thing is you got to let them try a lot of things, even if there are things that they might have difficulty with. For me, it was tennis. You got to let them try stuff because some of the, the things that challenge us the most empower us the most. And you don't want to miss out on something just because you're having a little bit of difficulty. For me, I've been doing that all my life. I know something that we didn't talk about yesterday was that from 7th grade to 12th grade, I played the trombone. Another thing that no one imagined that someone with my type of disability would be able to do. And so it's just important to try things, figure stuff out, whatever it may be. You got to be able to motivate them to do it. And once you find that thing you love, you realize that they are able to self-motivate themselves to get better at it. And eventually, like for me, how is the tennis court? Hopefully your child will have a safe haven in a way where they can go and play it and not feel disabled. And it's important to be there for them and provide the resources, but you have to let them experience it for themselves. Love that. And that word safe haven. Yes, totally. As you mentioned, you're now a student at the University of Vermont, and you only share with those closest to you about your condition. How do you choose who to tell? Why do you not tell others? How does that work for you? Because I've got, it's a, it's monumentally better. My discipline is monumentally better. I've gotten a lot more control over it than say, if this was asked like five years ago, because if it was asked five years ago, a lot of people would know because I would struggle with writing and people would know that and I'd be walking around and occasionally I'd have a twitch and my shoulder would pop up just like that. So nowadays, the reason that I like will tell certain people it's because either they need kind of an awakening or I feel like 
this person will understand and appreciate me better if they do it. But at the same time, like I said, most people don't know about it. And at this point, I like to keep it that way because I don't want it to change how they look at me. I want to be defined by who I am and how I act and not by the disability, which is something that's really hard for a lot of kids with disabilities. I consider myself lucky because I've gotten to the point where I am really good at hiding it. And so there's the people who could benefit from learning about it. And there's also the people that you just don't want to risk that change because you appreciate how they look at you. And that's one of the things I love working with kids is that they don't do that. I mean, like they just don't care. Then telling them doesn't change how they view you. I love that. I love that about kids too. And speaking of kids, that's what you want to do with your career. So you want to take your experiences as a misfit to help others, particularly students, and you want to be a school counselor. Why is that so important to you? My life, I've had to learn to adapt to my circumstances. My circumstances were always different than everyone else. And even though I had a lot of struggle, especially in school, I'm able to look back on it and say it's made me into who I am today. And I want to be able to show kids, especially at the young age where they're kind of realizing who they are, I want to give them and show them that you get to decide who you are, not your circumstances. And the determination that I've learned, the creativity, there are all these skills that begin when you're a little kid. From the point of learning, of playing with blocks and exploring different ways to do things, translated to me where throughout high school, middle school, and now even in college, where I think I've found 10 plus ways to write throughout the years. And so being able to adapt to your environment is just as important as not letting your environment define who you are. Oh, man, Zach, you have so much wisdom. Truly, you're such an inspiration and will continue to be And I love the fact that your future is going to impact our kids for the better. Your mom is a thousand percent right. Everything she says about you, I I just, I'm so impressed by you and your bravery, your honesty, your positive attitude, all of it, all of it. Thanks so much for coming on and teaching us what dystonia is and helping us support our kids better and Please keep in touch. I want to know what's going on with you and your world down the road, because again, I know your impact is going to be huge. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you for having me. This was an absolute fantastic opportunity. I'm so glad we were able to do this. Me too. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Mothers of Misfits podcast. Make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. We also invite you to visit us at mothersofmisfits.com.